Many of you last week, uh, there is a lot of sickness going around. Uh, more are sick this week. So let's be in prayer for our fellow brothers and sisters as there's a nasty flu, bug, virus. I don't know exactly what it is, but something's going around. Uh, also, today marks uh, the, a new Sunday, a new year in the life of our church, 2020. Hard to believe. Uh, and this year will, will mark actually our fifth birthday. So we were, we were started 2016, started meeting in February. Our birthday, I think we'll celebrate it this year on Easter. But uh, before I get into the sermon, I, I don't know, I've been, uh, Will's been telling that he feels convicted to uh, give more thanks and gratitude, and I've appreciated the way that he's thanked uh, the volunteers and kids ministry and our wives uh, of, of the music team who allow us to serve each week. But I just want to take a moment before we begin to just thank God for his grace and his goodness towards us. Uh, Jesus is the hero of our church. God is, God is the one who has called us, formed us. He's changing us. Uh, none of us are that great or awesome. Uh, I don't know if you believe that, but I hate it, to break it to you. God is the one who is the awesome. Uh, and God is the one who is, who is the rock of, of our church. So I want to take a moment on the front end as we start into a new year to thank him for his grace and ask for more as we get into the new year. So let's pray. Father, you alone deserve all the glory and the honor and the credit. Thank you for calling us together, for bringing us, for connecting our paths, for joining us into a family of faith. Father, you have been so gracious and good to us in the midst of our failures and uh, our sin, our mistakes. I thank you that you are faithful to your word, that you are faithful to yourself, that you are a God of grace and mercy. And Father, I just ask as we, as we continue and we move forward into a new year together, that you would continue to bless us and, and be gracious to us, that, you would shine your, that your face would shine upon us, that you'd be merciful to us, and that we would, not, uh, we would continue to remain humble. We would not become prideful or boastful in how good or great we are. We want to boast in you and in the cross and in the resurrection. So, Father, I love you. I thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, to prepare you for where we're headed this morning, I want to ask a question of you. I want, this to be, I want you to start thinking about this. Throw this up in the old uh, thinker. <laughs> wow. Okay, back to the notes. Uh, who are you? Who are you? Someone asked you the question, who are you? What would you say? Now, I enjoy the opportunity of, to, uh, to meet new people. I enjoy asking questions of people and finding out their story and learning more about them. Uh, but I remember one particular time, it was in a... a social setting, and uh, I had a friend with me who was introducing himself to another friend, and he asked this question, who are you? Now, that's not the typical question asked in kind of the, you know, meet and greet, tell me about who you are, right? Normal questions are, where are you from? What are your hobbies? What's your family like? You know, the questions like that, but who are you? And that stumped this individual. He didn't really know what to say, because it's not a typical question, but it's getting at our identity, I think from that identity, it tells a lot about then what we do. Who are you? So what would you say if someone asked you that question, who are you? I think this has great implications for the way that we live and how that we live. And this morning, we're looking at the testimony of a question, the testimony of a response, excuse me, to this question, who are you, based on the testimony of John the Baptist. So if you have a Bible, uh, open with me to John chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at verses 19 through 34. Last week we introduced our new study through the Gospel according to John. Will did a great job of looking at the first 18 verses, what are called the prologue. 
Uh, and he described how uh, the reason kind of why we titled this study or why we're looking at this study, we're calling it Written for Belief, is found in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So I think I have the ability to put it up on the screen. That should be up on the screen now. Sweet. John 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right, last week, Will introduced that study and looking at this verse of where we're going throughout the study. And he showed verses in verses 1 through 18 that there's a seemingly kind of chiastic structure where the tail ends of the verses meet and form the center, which was verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Also centering and highlighting that, that understanding or that truth that the aim is to believe in Jesus, believe in his name. So John, the, the author who wrote this book, was an individual who had his life transformed by Jesus. He believed in him and found life in his name, and he's found life and joy and peace in Jesus. So he's written this account that we may experience the same thing that he's found in Jesus, right? I was thinking about it like this. Uh, imagine finding what the ancient folklore and described as the fountain of youth. You guys know what I'm referencing, the fountain of youth? This magical fountain or, or pool that, that you can be, bathe in it or drink in it and you can be young forever. Fountain of youth. Now imagine, uh, bear with me if you a little bit, imagine finding this at a water fountain in Saltwater State Park. Okay? This thing that provides life and uh, health. And if you just drink of this fountain in Saltwater State Park towards uh, the little shelter that you will find that you can experience this. Now, I think what you'd want to do, I mean, unless you were a miserably selfish or uh, self-absorbed person, you'd want other people to experience this fountain of youth that you found in Des Moines, right? All of us could have access to that. So you tell other people about it. You write accounts of people, maybe you talk about uh, important figures or, or famous people who have also found this in an effort to bolster uh, your, your claim that in this fountain at Saltwater State Park is the fountain of youth. You know, of course, any illustration talking about God and the gospel and relating it to a water fountain is going to break down, right? But the idea is John has found life in this Jesus, and he's writing this account to get us to experience that to drink from the fountain. So right out of the gate, as he talks about Jesus, he was uh, with God in the beginning. He was, he was God. He, he came and dwelt among us. And we would, we should, anyone who believes in him can become a child of God. Right out of that prologue, he introduces us to a testimony of a very famous and important figure in the time trying, trying to anchor and bolster that claim. That if you believe in Jesus, you can have life in his name. And, and this person, this John the Baptist, this important figure in this time, bore the same testimony. You guys tracking with me? Uh, in our passage, uh, the next week, actually, we'll see that some of these followers of this important figure, John the Baptist, actually left John the Baptist and started following Jesus. And, and in his commentary on the gospel, according to John, D.A. Carson says it like this. If some of Jesus' first disciples had earlier followed John the Baptist, we must suppose that something encouraged them to abandon their old master at the peak of his influence in order to follow a still unknown preacher from Galilee. 
The best reason is the obvious one. They changed their allegiance precisely because it was the Baptist himself who pointed out Jesus as the one coming to fulfill the promises of Scripture. In that case, the confessions of John 1 are not only plausible, but almost historically necessary. So that's what we're looking at this morning, the testimony of John the Baptist, verses 19 through 34. So let's look at our text, looking at that question, what does the text say? Starting in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. Testimony in this sense is used of as witness. The verbal or written evidence by something that's affirmed to be true. This is proof provided to help us believe in Jesus. So this is the testimony of John. When the Jews... Now, sorry to pause so much in this verse, but this is the first time that this word Jews is used in the gospel according to John, and it's used 67 other times throughout his account. And throughout the account, it's sometimes used neutrally and, and sometimes it's used positively, but most likely and, and most often it's used in the negative sense. So Jews is kind of a short, shorthand for those who oppose Jesus. Now, he's not saying that all Jews oppose Jesus because the author John who wrote this was a Jew. Uh, John the Baptist was a Jew. But it's John's shorthand of saying those people who opposed Jesus. And one commentary said it like this, John wants Jewish readers in his own time to realize that opposition to Jesus by many Jewish leaders goes back to the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. But that did not deter many Jews from following him anyway. In many places in John, the Jews seems to be a shorter expression for the Jews who opposed Jesus. Make sense? So this is the testimony of, of John the Baptist when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now this phrase can be thought of like this. He did not deny to answer their question, but confessed. Or he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. In other words, he came right out and said, I am not the Christ. He knew who he wasn't. And the peculiar way that this is worded in the ESV, um, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed that peculiar way seems to be a, a, show, a way of showing that John's denying that he was the Christ made up part of his positive claim later, talking about who was the Christ. So John being a popular figure in the time there, many people came to hear his teaching and, and preaching. So the Jews were sending people to kind of figure out what was this, what was this guy about, who was he? What was his identity? What was he doing here? And he comes out and says, I am not the Christ. The terms that means anointed one are the Messiah. A term or a figure in the history of the Israelites who was to deliver or save Israel, who was going to save them from their enemies and establish a kingdom of peace forever. He says, I am not the Messiah, the Christ. So they ask in verse 21, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John here is quoting from Isaiah 43. And in the context, Isaiah chapter 40 is describing God wanting to comfort the people of Israel by telling them that one day he would pardon them from their sin and the warfare would be ended. And then he calls them to prepare themselves for the coming of the Lord. And, and John is understanding that he is the one who is doing that. He is preparing the people of Israel for the coming of the Lord himself. And the people must prepare themselves by repenting. Repenting, turning from their sin and trusting 
in God. Interesting enough, some Bible scholars believe that this reference to the wilderness here when he says, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness, and other places in the gospel accounts that John is recorded as preaching in the wilderness suggests that John the Baptist is getting the people of Israel ready for a new exodus in which God will deliver them through Jesus, not from Pharaoh and slavery, but from ultimate bondage and sin to Satan and, and their own wicked hearts. And the next verses in parentheses, it shows us that these people had actually been sent from the Pharisees, a small, powerful group of Jews who were very meticulous about observing not only the law, but extra biblical tradition. So they were the ones who uh, thought that they could earn their righteousness or earn status with God by keeping all of their laws. Jesus later uh, attacks this group of people pretty hard for their hypocrisy and, and the fact that you can't trust in anything that you do to, to become righteous and earn favor with God. But being an influential and powerful uh, group of people in the time, they wanted to check out this man who was, had a, a powerful influence himself. So they sent uh, these people to ask the questions. So then they asked in verse 25, why then are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. The word baptize means to immerse. And John, in this sense, was, was dunking people in water. He was, it was an outward uh, act, a sign of inward repentance and cleansing. It was a symbol of repentance. And John answered them in verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And in this context, the job of untying sandals was, was the slave's job. So what John is saying is that he is not even worthy to be a slave of this figure. He is that powerful, that worthy of that much honor, that he's not even worthy to untie his sandal. So verse 29 records the next day. When he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Now this ties back to what Will looked at last week in the, pre, in the prelude. The prologue, the first 18 verses, when it says in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So that verse 30 is tying that back to verse 15 in the testimony of John. And he said, I myself, in verse 31, did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And that's important. It not only descended upon Jesus, but it remained on him. And, and all throughout the history of the Israelite people, they're, they're recorded in the Old Testament that the Spirit is uh, described as empowering people, coming, rushing upon them, or, or anointing them for a particular task or job. But this Jesus, this particular character here, is described as not only being uh, the, the Spirit descending upon him, but it's going to remain on him. And this would be another further link linking him to this Messiah, this one who is described in the prophets as the Spirit would rest upon him. He would have the Spirit of God upon him at all times. In other words, it wasn't just a momentary uh, empowering or a coming upon him like we saw uh, earlier with Judges and with Samson or, or some of the Judges before that. This would be someone who would, the Spirit of God would remain upon him. 
It's another link to him as being the Christ. And John says in verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Meaning, Jesus, John did not know that Jesus was the Christ until he saw this, the Spirit descending upon him and remaining on him. This was the sign. And this is also in verse 33, the third time that we see that phrase, do not know. Right, we saw it in verse 26, among you stands one you do not know. Also in verse 31, I myself did not know him. In verse 33, I myself did not know him, a repetition of that. And I think this is another connection back to the prologue in which John says in verse 10, he was in the world, the word, referencing Jesus, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. It's another example, connection back to that, that the Pharisees, the Jews do not know him, and John himself did not know him until God had revealed that to him by the sign of the Spirit coming upon him and remaining upon him. In verse 34, we see, we see the kind of the end of this testimony of John the Baptist, and he says, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. This is what receiving or believing in Jesus means, that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the one, the second person in the Godhead who took on flesh, who came and dwelt among us, God with us. This is who Jesus is, the Son of God. And now with that brief kind of look at the text and what does the text say, I want to look at what the text means, looking at some of the historical elements, drawing out some principles and seeking into how we can apply that to our life. You guys still with me? Cool. Now, in the original context, John the author wrote, I think, through this, describing this witness of John the Baptist uh, to kind of build out our, this kind of his first proof that, that just Jesus is who he said he was, that other people believed in him and, and bore witness to this reality that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the one, the Word, God made flesh, that all who read and would believe and find life in this Jesus would confess that same reality, this is the Son of God. I've seen him and I've borne witness to him. And that's what, in the original context, that's what I think this was written for. John was an influential character at the time. He was a powerful figure. He testified or bore witness to Jesus' identity and mission. And, and, and all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they record John the Baptist at the beginning. And it's seemingly because John is, is a key figure in, in the Bible. He's kind of like a bridge that connects the Old and New Testament. He describes the fulfillment of, of Jesus. He's the one who who kind of brings the Old Testament to the New Testament and prepares us for Jesus. And, and we look, when we look at this important figure's testimony, his words, his confession, I think we find a key principle that's timeless and that we can apply to our life today. That all Christians are those who have seen Jesus and are to bear witness to him. Christians are those who have seen Jesus and bore witness to him. John knew his identity as a witness and this fueled and empowered his purpose in life. The Jews came to John and sent the Pharisees asking, who are you? What do you say about yourself? And he knew who he was, and he said, I'm not the Christ, but he also knew who he was. He said, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now, although we... Unlike John, we, I don't think we can apply Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 to our life. 
We are not the, the, one, the voices in the wilderness preparing the ways of the Lord. But the principle from this reality is we are witnesses. Christians are those who are witnesses to Jesus. Like John, the church is to be Jesus' witness, his representative in word and in deed. In other words, when we think back upon the question, who are you, the identity of a, of a Christian is tied back to this truth that we are called to be witnesses, representatives, to see Jesus and bear witness to him. John saw and bore witness that he was the son of God and he gave himself to preparing others for his coming. The author John later records in John 3.30 that John the Baptist said, he, referring to Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. Similarly, I, I think although none of us, to my knowledge, have given ourselves, are planning to give ourselves to eating a diet of honey and locusts, are wearing camel's hair and living in the wilderness and baptizing people in the Jordan River. Although, if you want to do that, more power to you. If we are followers of Jesus, we call ourselves Christian. Our purpose and mission in life is to bear witness to him, to confess and point others to him, to increase his fame and renown. Seek that. He must increase, I must decrease, to make much of him at the expense of our own fame and glory and honor. But naturally, I think we resist these truths, don't we? We seem to answer that question, well, how do we resist these truths? And I don't think it's we resist the concept that we bear witness to what we see. That seems to be a kind of a, a reality that's just part of our human nature. We bear witness to what we see. We talk about what we love. But we resist beholding and worshiping Jesus. We resist loving him. He's not the center or focus of what we bear witness to. He's not the one who defines our identity or what has complete ownership of all of our life. We seek to find our, our identity, our, the core of who we are, by what we do, by our accomplishments, by our bank account, by our careers. We seek to build our own sense of self-worth in relationships, or in social media, or a voice or a heart inside that tells us something. This is a, a main teaching, our, our a truth that we see in the meta-narrative of our culture, isn't it? One of the main preachers of this teaching is Disney. It's essentially the message of look inside, discover who you want to be, and against all odds, show yourself. Listen to that voice inside you, and whether it's Frozen or Moana, of two young daughters, those are movies that they like, or, I'm not going to spoil it for you, the new Star Wars, is essentially the message, look inside. Define who you are. And whatever feeling or whatever's in there, and how you do that, or what that means, but whatever's in there, then follow that. Build your identity on yourself. And because we don't root our identity in Jesus, we don't love him, we don't see him, we don't bear witness to his glory, his worth, and identity, we essentially live for ourselves displaying and enjoying ourselves, not the glory or infinite worth of God in Christ. We boast in our own accomplishments. We showboat. We brag or talk about how great we are. We're so selfish and so self-centered that we don't think we are. We don't even realize that, how selfish and self-centered we are. And, whether, and I think these truths are, are self-evident. Whether it's athletes or movie stars or what we see on Instagram or, or Facebook, the magnification of self. Even in our own generation, we've, we've created this new title for a a type of photography. It's called a selfie. 
right? We didn't create something called a Yui or a, <laughs> how do I make other people look good? It's a selfie. This week I typed into Google, what is the purpose of my life? This is the top, this is the top response. Let go of thinking there is only one purpose for you and embrace the idea that our purpose in life is to love life fully by putting ourselves into our life. You guys understand that? I didn't. To lead a purposeful life, follow your passions. When we live a passion-filled life, we are living on our purpose. And that is the purpose of our life. That just seems to spin me in circles and now I'm confused. But essentially, this is the anthem of humanity. It's described as in the first couple pages of the Bible. These people who, uh, the ba- they wanted to make this Tower of Babel. And this is what they said. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. I think that's the anthem of humanity. But when we look at question four, how does Jesus accomplish that or how is he the hero? What we see in Jesus is that even though our eyes are veiled to his supreme worth and greatness, even though the our minds are blinded to see him for who he truly is. We have been blinded by our own rebellion and desire to make much of ourselves. Jesus was sent by the Father to magnify and display the glory of God and shine the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into our hearts that we might believe and see him for who he truly is. Jesus was sent by the Father to magnify and display the glory of God and to create worshipers of him who will see him and have eyes to see and ears to hear and make much of him for their increasing joy. Why do lovers praise and bear witness to their love or their partner? Why do parents share baby pictures and talk about their children? Why do sports fans cheer for their team and post on social media when the refs change the outcome of the game? We talk about what we love. We praise what we enjoy. And the beauty of the gospel, the good news of the Christian faith, is that by the supernatural work of God, we see something in Jesus that we've never seen before. We are given eyes to see him that we, have, we hadn't before. We are given a new love and a passion and enjoyment before in Jesus, before that we didn't think was enjoyable. The British writer and scholar says it like this, C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased." Infinite joy is offered to us, friends, and that is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sin, gives us new eyes to see, baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. Jesus, this Lamb of God, who John confesses, is the one who makes it possible. He accomplishes this for us. Jesus was the Lamb of God. When, when John said, behold the Lamb of God, this, this would have been a clear reference to Isaiah 53, who talks about this man of sorrows who would come, who would be crushed on behalf of the sins of the people. He described as being like a sheep before his shears is silent, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. He was crushed for our iniquities and sins. This is the Jesus who John is confessing and, and crying out. Also, when he cries out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes to the sins of the world, the Jewish audience would have thought of this as the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb, which is a, a festival and a celebration of the Jews remembering that they were freed from captivity in 
Egypt when the angel of the Lord passed over their houses when they took the blood of a lamb and put it on their doorposts. By calling out, this is the Lamb of God, John is linking him to Jesus being the ultimate Passover lamb, the one who's by his blood being shed, people could have forgiveness of sins. Death would pass over them and their sins would be taken away, atoned for, taken on Jesus. Jesus is not only the the Lamb of God, which John confesses in here, but John confesses that he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, who will immerse you in the Holy Spirit. Now, there was a Jewish prophet named Ezekiel who promised that one day God would cleanse the people from all their uncleanliness. He would purify them from their idols, and he would do this by sending his own spirit into the hearts of the people to cause them to be made new and to cause them to actually want to obey God. And it's from this promised age in which people would find the bondage of freedom and sin that they would be transformed from the inside out that John is saying this Jesus would baptize people in this Holy Spirit. He is going to bring about this promised age in which God would pour out his spirit and change his people. They would finally have new hearts and Jesus is the one who accomplished this. This baptism is not a separate phenomenon as as some people might believe or teach. This baptism is, is what John later refers to as the new birth, where God, by his great mercy, sends the spirit to cause us to be born again. The spirit comes into our life and causes us to believe gives us new eyes to see Jesus, new hearts to love him, new ears to hear what he says and believe it. This is what the Spirit does. Jesus becomes real to us. In a letter from the missionary and apostle Paul to the Galatian Christians, Paul writes that he says it was before their eyes that Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. Meaning the Holy Spirit did something in them that Paul could say that it was almost as if Jesus was right there before them. They saw him clearly portrayed at court crucified and they believed in him. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. Later, the the apostle Paul records that he prays that, "I, I pray that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. In other words, though none of us have, after Jesus' physical life here on earth, none of us have physically seen Jesus with our physical eyes. But the Bible records us that we have these eyes of the hearts, We have these spiritual eyes in which we can see Jesus and the Holy Spirit empowers us and changes us and transforms us to do that. And it's from this seeing of Jesus, I believe that that leads us to being his witness. Jesus said it like this. He promised his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit will do that in your life. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away our sins, gives us the Spirit, and transforms us not only to see Jesus, but to be his witness. Jesus gives us a new identity that through dying on the cross, through removing our sin, and through sending the Holy Spirit, he empowers us to be a new person, to have a new purpose in life, a new identity in life, a new mission in life. And that leads us to consider how does this empower us to do what it says and means. Jesus, being the Lamb of God, baptizing his people in the Holy Spirit, empowers us to be what John does in this passage, the witness of Jesus. Seeing Jesus and bearing witness to him in verse 34, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. 
Friends, our identity in this witness and our ability to be witnesses, I think, are, are very much related and tied together. The fact that we are made new creations and it's from this identity then that we are his witnesses is a truth that we see throughout uh, the New Testament. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you guys see that correlation? We are made new creations, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Peter says it like this, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why were you chosen? To proclaim. You have received grace as a Christian. In God's great mercy, you have become a Christian to be his witness. And that's the truth that we see in this passage, and that's the truth that we must apply to ourselves this morning. This means if someone asks the question, who are you? We don't primarily define ourselves by what we do, our family of origin, or how tall or short we are, or the color of our beard. We define ourselves by what does Christ say about us? We define ourselves by what Christ has done. We, we know and confess that I was a slave to sin. I was a rebel, a child of wrath by nature. I was not loving God, yet God in his great mercy and grace caused me to be born again. He sent the spirit into my life to, to wreck me, to change me from the inside out, to give me new eyes to see Jesus, and I love him. Yes, I haven't seen him, but I love him. I do not now see him, but I believe in him, and I'm rejoicing in what he's done with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's what Jesus has done in my life. That's what God has done. He's given me the spirit to do that. I am now, I'm loved, I'm accepted, not because of anything that I've done or haven't done, but simply because of Christ. And it's from this identity that I want all people to experience the same freedom and joy and hope that I found in Jesus. Therefore, I share, I love, I serve. Hopefully that's our, our attitude and our confession, isn't it? I want to be Jesus' witness in word and work, in truth and deed. I know I've been bought with a price. I'm not my own. Therefore, I want to glorify God with everything in my life. And Jesus has accomplished this. Jesus has empowered me to do this. Friends, I think that the way that we grow in this is not a one-time belief in this reality, not a one-time seeing and bearing witness. But the way that we grow in this is a continual seeing that helps us to be witness, grows us as witnesses, a continual coming back to the gospel, a continual coming back to see Jesus, to see his unique and particular glories and be amazed by him so that we can't help but talk about him. It overflows. Our hearts are transformed. We, we find wonder and we're amazed in him. 
And it's from this changed posture, this renewed focus, this repentance, that then we are his witnesses. We seek to understand more and more of God's grace and the implications and applications of the gospel and apply that to all aspects of our life. It's not a one-time thing. It's just the, this is what we do our, the rest of our life, the work of our life. This is how we grow as witnesses. I believe that we must be frequently and often reminded of our identity and our purpose because our hearts, by nature, are prone to wander. Although our hearts have been made new by Jesus, the eyes of our hearts are prone to distraction. We find any other thing that captures us, and we ultimately bear witness to that. And it seems, friends, as I've seen this in my life and I've seen the lives of others, that if we are not seeing Jesus and seeing glory in him and being amazed by him, we just won't, be his, we won't seek to be his witness. We might force ourselves or get convicted by a sermon or pressured by a question, but it's not really going to be lasting and transformative. We don't really want to. It's hard to talk and share about something that we don't love and enjoy or are witnessing. Like, for example, I didn't watch any NFL games yesterday. I can't tell you who's playing or how great the games were. I can't bear witness to that. I didn't see it. I can't tell you about the beauties of the Niagara Falls. Never been there. And we've seen this reality in work. Like, what happens when you go into work on Monday and a coworker asks you, man, did you see that, that viral video, whatever it is, like a dog riding a skateboard or whatever the next viral video is? And you haven't. So then he shares it with you. Or you look it up for yourself. And then you want to share that with others. That's kind of what we do, right? We see something, we bear witness to it, and and we pass it along. And, And friends, I don't think the hard part about being a witness of Jesus is not talking about Jesus. It's actually beholding glory and beauty in Jesus. Or preparing our hearts on the front end. Because we talk about what we love. We praise what we enjoy. harder part, the part that takes work, divine help from the Spirit, prayer and repentance and meditation and scripture memorization and seeking to understand and apply the gospel, that, that, that is the hard work. Seeing and savoring glory in Jesus. Being amazed by him. Having the eyes of our hearts open to see him for who he is and enjoy him. So friends, I pray as we begin the new year that we seek to make this a a goal or an aim for 2020. Seeing Jesus and bearing witness to him. To see him more clearly, to seek and to be his witness more faithfully every day. I pray that's a goal of ours as a church. I I think there's something we can grow in as a church. Seeing glory in Jesus and being his witness. And I hope and pray, friends, that by God's grace, every time you gather with the church, you are singing songs that is encouraging your heart to believe this. We're singing songs about Jesus and his love for us and his mercy towards us and our responsibility to obey him in that. I I pray that we do that, that you hear sermons from the word of God that are centered on the gospel that remind you each week that this is a reality, that Jesus is the best, that there's nothing like following him, that believing in him brings unprecedented and unmatched freedom and life and joy. But friends, there is also a decision that you must make individually to make this your own commitment not just to hear someone and to sing together once a week, but to make this a regular practice and focus of your life. And you must make this decision for yourself. 
You must make this commitment on your own, this individual commitment to grow and see Jesus and be amazed by who he is and want to learn more and more about his grace. So friends, I pray in 2020 that we can grow as witnesses who reflect Jesus in our enjoyment of God, in the way that we listen to others, that we are genuinely interested in others more than talking about ourselves and making ourselves look good. I pray that we earn the right to be asked when they ask us the question of what makes us different or, or what makes you so joyful or patient or kind. I pray that we grow as witnesses who encourage our fellow brothers and sisters who are in this room this morning. That through sharing a, a verse with them or asking about what they're learning or talking about what they're learning or coming early to the gathering or staying late because you love being with God's people and you, you, have, you feel a responsibility to encourage them in this. I pray that we will grow as witnesses on social media by being different, that every post isn't about ourselves, but it's ultimately about what we love. I pray that we will use the creativity to use our gifts and our hobbies and our free times, that God would give us that creativity to be his witness in the unique personalities and ways that God has gifted us. And I pray that if you're not already doing this, that you would begin to do this beginning with the new year, that it would be a goal and a priority for you to meet with someone regularly one person regularly who does not know Jesus in an effort to help them follow Jesus. That would be a culture in our church. We would have a culture of discipling, something, a regular practice in which what we do. We are meeting with other people and helping them follow Jesus. Don't worry about bringing them to a gospel community or to a Sunday gathering. Just start to build trust with them. Build a relationship with them. Share your life and share your story and ask to hear theirs. Invite them to follow Jesus with you. And may our prayer in 2020 be, God, our Father, help us, grant us to see you for who you are, to open the eyes of our hearts to be amazed and struck with wonder at who you are, and that from this seeing, this wonder, this amazement, this worship, that we become witnesses. We are sent out to our watching world. Help us to behold your glory that we may proclaim it. Help us to change what we love that we may talk about what we love, and, and that you would be what we love most clearly and fully. Father, we ask that we, we want others to see your son Jesus at work in us. We want others to ask us the reason that, of the hope that is in us. Would you do this for your glory? Friends, I hope and pray this is where we want to go as a church. I want to grow in, as a witness to Christ. I want to grow in, in being more intentional and in meeting with those who do not yet know Jesus. And I ask that you would join me and join us as we do this. That we would make this commitment in our year, seeing Jesus and being his witness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, in your mysterious plan. You have called us to be your ambassadors, your witnesses. Father, I don't understand that. That seems peculiar and puzzling to me. As I reflect upon my life, I am so often such a terrible witness to you. I don't even think about it. I go throughout my day unconsciously or even intentionally just looking after my own interests and my own desires. 
Father, I know and I believe that you have sent Jesus, that he is the Son of God. You have transformed my life, Jesus. I have found life and peace and freedom in you, and I want to find increasing freedom and joy in you. Father, I want other people to experience increasing freedom and joy in you. I, I want this church to be freed and found joy in you. Father, would you help us? Would you be gracious to us? Would you send your spirit to, to renew our hearts, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Father, thank you for the great many ways that you have worked in our church. You have brought new families. You have called people to yourself in our midst. We have witnessed and seen you at work as people have been baptized and celebrated your work in their life. Father, I ask that, that you would help us to be your ambassadors and your witness to others in our city, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, who are lost in darkness, who are ignorant of who you are, who don't see wonderful things in you and are not amazed by you. Father, we know that we don't have the job and responsibility of, of causing new life. Only you do that. But we do have the responsibility to share and, and to serve and to love and to listen and to pray. So, Father, I ask that you would help us to be your witness. Thank you for your word, your reminder, and your encouragement through John. As he was your witness, he prepared the way of you, and I ask that, that you would help us to do the same, to help other people follow Jesus by our humble efforts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.